to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. I'm talking to Celeste Hadley about how to have better conversations. Celeste is a journalist, TEDx speaker, and a best-selling author. I recently read her book, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, and I loved it. It was filled with simple and effective recommendations for becoming a better communicator. I invited her to be on the show to talk about it because right now, so many people seem to be struggling with figuring out how do you talk to someone. Most of us haven't had that many in-person conversations for over a year. And there are so many polarizing issues people are struggling to talk about right now. On the show today, she talks about how to have better conversations with people, and not just about tough topics, but how you can communicate better with anyone. As a therapist, I happen to know that communication problems are at the heart of most relationship issues, as well as many of our struggles with mental health. So I think everyone can learn something from the tips that Celeste shares. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's a part of the show where I'll break down Celeste's mental strength strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Celeste Headley on how becoming a better communicator can make your girl mentally stronger. Celeste Headley, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you for asking me. So I know that you have a couple of books under your belt, but the one I really want to talk about for the most part today is We Need to Talk, because I found that book to be so helpful. I know you did a TED Talk about this, and I think it's got like 25 million views. So clearly people are interested in hearing more about conversations. I was just going to say that that, during the pandemic, um, there's been a spike (laughs) in sales. (laughs) Yeah, I think. And it, do you think that's because people are sitting at home and they're with their partner for the first time and they're thinking, what do we even talk about? I think there's a f- couple things going on um, that could be part of it. I also think that um, people are a little nervous and a little anxious about going back out into the world and speaking with other people. And I also think that when we kind of had to sort of slow down a little bit, I think people began aware of maybe some communication problems they were having, right? Um, Especially since communication is so difficult when you're stressed and anxious, which we all are and have been. Um, So it's possible that people started noticing some communication problems that were there, but they hadn't noticed before. That makes sense. And suddenly people slowed down and they were forced to have conversations. And I think for people too, to have conversations maybe over the phone or over FaceTime, it's different than when you're in the same room as somebody. So sometimes it's hard to think, what am I going to talk about? We're just going to stare at each other over FaceTime. Yeah. And, and, you know, Zoom, um, which I used to recommend as a communication tool, but do not really anymore. Um, if you can use the, just the phone or meet them in person instead, um, brings its own set of problems. So there, there have been even more complications uh, and and difficulties involved in communication since the pandemic began. Anytime your communication is digitally mediated, like ours is right now, there's going to be some heightened uh, problems. 
Oh, so what's your concern about Zoom? What happens to us when we're trying to stare at each other while we talk as opposed to just having a phone call? It's actually, well, to me, it's quite fascinating because I like all of this neurological research, but we now have a, a, a pretty large body of research on what's going on in your brain when you are communicating on Zoom as opposed to the telephone, for example. Um, first of all, a lot of people are going from one meeting to another on Zoom. And we, we happen to know, thanks to some uh, brain research from Microsoft, that that is extremely stressful. Like you can watch the brain scans of people who just bounce from one meeting to another and watch the brain become more and more anxious and stressed out. The other thing is that there's some some part of the functions of Zoom make it particularly exhausting. Um, you do not get the biofeedback that you do over the phone or in person that lifts your mood. So, I mean, I'm, I'll try to explain it as quickly as possible without getting wonky because not everybody likes studies like I do. So conversation of any kind is cognitively tasking, right? We, we make always make these um, calculations based on cost versus reward. And um, conversation has a very high cost. It's difficult, right? That's part of the reason it's actually beneficial for us is because cognitively and emotionally, it's a difficult task. But when you're speaking on the phone or you're in person, you get all this biofeedback um, that, lit, that makes the reward so much higher than even the cost, right? It lifts your mood. It slows your heart rate. It, it fills you full of those hormones that make you feel good, oxytocin and serotonin that make you feel happy. Um, with Zoom, you're not getting all those rewards. So all you have is this very high cost. There's this illusion of eye contact where right now, in order for me to, to appear like I'm looking at you, I'm not looking at you, right? I would have to look right. over here at the screen. There's also lags um, and it's difficult. Our brain is trying to match up what, it, our brain is trying to fix the problems with Zoom, <laughs> right? It's trying to fix yeah. lag. It's trying to like help us connect or make eye contact with others who's speaking. And so you can give yourself a headache and it's absolutely exhausting. I mean, this is just kind of touching the surface, but we have found out a lot about Zoom and we know that while it's, it's totally fine, it also, the use of it needs to be more limited. Uh, I, as somebody that does a lot of Zoom meetings, I completely agree <laughs> with everything that you just said. It, it's quite exhausting. So yeah. thank you for, for weighing in on that. When it comes to our in-person conversations, uh, having a conversation, is it more of an art uh, or a science? I'd say it's more a skill. <laughs> okay. um, I mean, you know, we say that the phrase social skills all the time, but we forget that we just use the word skill, right? A skill is something that can be artful, but more importantly, it's something that can be taught and learned. And you can also get out of practice, right? I, I like to people to think of um, conversation as a little bit more like a bike ride, right? You know, once you have learned how to bike, you basically will know for the rest of your life. But if you don't do it for a long time, you're going to be rusty. And it's the same thing with conversation, which is sort of where people are right now. They're a little bit rusty and wobbly on their wheels, but that knowledge of how to have a conversation is still there. You just need to become aware and and tune up your instrument <laughs> a little bit. Um, so there there can be art involved. I mean, I try to avoid art or talent because that makes it seem like some people are born as good conversationalists and some people aren't. And that is just not true. 
you can be very, very awkward in conversation and after training become engaging and interesting and a great conversationalist. Well, so there's hope for all of us then if we want to work on that. So what's the, what's the reason why we need to get better at conversations? What's the benefits or why would, why should we care about this? I mean, there is nothing more important to our species. I mean, I can't put it more plainly than that. Our survival since the days of Neanderthals has depended on our ability to communicate with each other. There is research going back hundreds of years, which shows we are better in groups than we are individually. And it really doesn't matter how good you are at this task or what, how much of an expert you are or how much experience you are, the group is going to outperform you. <laughs> so in order for us to thrive um, and honestly to survive as a, as a species, we need to work together and collaborate and communicate. That's our evolutionary superpower. So all of the other problems that we have, no matter how intransigent, transigent and difficult, whether it be climate change, whether it be vaccinations, whether it pandemic period, um, all of those things are impossible to solve without good communication. Yeah, it's just it's at the core of everything. Uh, and as a therapist, I say it's at the core of most of the reasons why people land in my therapy office. Uh, really? What would you say? Yeah, definitely. Uh, sometimes it's uh, parenting issues or relationship problems. Uh, people that think that they've set boundaries, but they haven't communicated those boundaries. Lots of those sorts of things that end up causing a lot of stress in people's lives. And when they learn to communicate better, a lot of those things get better. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I don't know if you see this much in in your office, but I also find that people think they are much better at reading other people than they are. And this yes. causes a lot of communication problems. You know, they'll see someone there someone's talking and a, a you know, the, what they think of as an angry face flits across the other person and they think, "Oh, they're angry at me." And then when we get as you know, when we get them into the lab, they don't they can't reliably identify an angry face. <laughs> Right. We, 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 we are not as good as reading other people as we think, which means we have to learn how to ask. I love that because we do. We make assumptions, we draw conclusions, we read between the lines, and most of those things are inaccurate. What else? What, other are, what are some of the other biggest communication mistakes you see? Um, we, we, you know, we go into our conversations thinking and, and, and concerned about what it is we're going to say. And I really wish people would completely forget about whatever it is they're going to say and only worry about what it is they want to hear. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that when you, every time we research this, we find out that people are generally pretty good talkers. Even those who identify as uh, introverts, um, they're actually fine at talking. What they're not good at is conversing. <laughs> and the reason they're not good at conversing is because being a good conversationalist requires you to listen as well as you talk. So if you stop worrying about what you're going to say, because believe me, your brain will take care of that. Um, and only worry about, you know, what, what would I want to know from this person? What questions do I have? If you focus on that, it will A, relieve a lot of the pressure, um, but it also, it, it also forces you to be able to listen. It, forces you to up those listening skills, which are really the problem when it comes to most people's communication skills. I agree. And I like that you've said that we need to focus on hearing other people much more than we focus on what we're going to say. 
something else that I really liked in your book is you talk about the fact that we enjoy talking about ourselves, that that makes us happy. But people don't really enjoy listening about us nearly as much as we think they do. Yeah, it's this, it's the the one-sided dopamine, right? <laughs> you know, it's these neurotransmitters, these these hormones, uh, some of them, a dopamine is is one of them and it can give you pleasure. But A, it's a very solitary pleasure. You're the only person feeling it. Um, so when you talk about yourself, you get this little blip of dopamine. That's the exact same thing you get when you refresh your email, right? When you, it's it's that, a variable reward that you get when you you pull the arm on a slot machine. So it's addictive. Um, but the other, the, the, the hormones that you get when you're actually conversing and engaging with another person, when you're having that mutual exchange of ideas, those are things like serotonin and the oxytocin, the mommy's hug hormones. That's lasting. They make you a better person. They tend to make you more generous. Like, for a lasting period of time. Whereas talking about yourself will make you feel good temporarily, but it that's not shared with the other person. So you can walk away. You know, I, I always say when I'm giving speak, keynote speeches or something, I'll say, you know, have you ever had a job interview where you come out of it thinking, I nailed it, I feel great. And then you never got called back for another interview or like went on a first date and you're like, we had such a connection. And then they never called you. That could be because of that one-sided dopamine fooling you because you feel great into thinking that they feel great too. I like that because I think a lot of people lack self-awareness about that. And that's a good reminder that just because we think our lives are interesting doesn't mean everybody else wants to hear about it. Something else that really resonated with me is you said that just because you're a good storyteller doesn't mean you're necessarily a good conversationalist. Yeah, and this is what I was talking about in terms of the difference between talking and listening. You know, um, one of the things that surprised me in the book was how the smart, the higher your IQ goes, the, the higher the likelihood that you're bad in conversation. And it's for this reason that you're alluding to that, you know, smart people, they know a lot. They have a lot of information at their disposal. You know, they they feel like they want to share all this knowledge and all this interesting stuff they've done. Um, but that means they're not listening. It means they're just presenting all the time, right? Uh, so the, people often have these sort of go-to stories that they tell. And I do too, right? You know, like if it's a good story, I may have told it a, a dozen times. But if I'm telling a story I've told many times before, I'm not really engaged myself. I'm, I'm telling that story by rote. We tend to tell these stories the exact same way every time, including the pauses in between. Um, and it means I'm, I'm paying zero attention to their reaction or whether they want to cut in. So yeah, storytelling can really get in, in the way. Now I have to, you know, you, I got to be careful here because authentic storytelling, that's part of a conversation, that's part of that give and take and exchange that can be quite wonderful. And I'm always trying to get people to tell me their stories. Um, but if you're a storyteller, uh, that's usually a, a warning flag. Interesting. Okay. And I completely agree with what you said when you repeat your story over and over. Uh, like you, I do a lot of podcast interviews in terms of people asking me about why did you write a book? And they ask a lot of the same questions. And when I do tell the same story, I jump into the same language, the same phrases, trying to tell this emotional story, but it's hard to do. 
Have you ever gotten lost? That's happened to me a couple of times where I've started telling a story and my brain just starts wandering off because I've told it so many times. I don't have to even cognitively engage anymore. And then I'll be like, wait, (laughs) where was I? It's like this. Yeah. So yeah. Yes. So then what can we do? Let's say, okay, I want to get better at making conversations yet. Okay. I don't want to be that person that talks all about myself. What should I do? I mean, you can focus on the questions, though. I really, you know, the first thing is I want people to stop calling themselves introverts um, because it's it's probably not true. You know, um, Carl Jung invented those terms, introvert and extrovert. And even he said that a true introvert doesn't exist. That person would be completely insane. Right. Um, But introversion and extroversion are the extreme ends of what's a spectrum. You know, Adam Grant does a lot, the organizational psychologist does a lot of work in this area. Um, and he's, he says, and, and we know that the vast majority of people in the world are in the middle, they're ambiverts, meaning sometimes they like to be around people and sometimes they need to be alone. But if they're forced, if they're at a work event and they have to be social with other people, they can. That's a very healthy state to be in. <clears throat> Pardon me. And the reason it's dangerous to identify as introverts is because research has showed this, that it becomes this very, very dangerous cycle. So you call yourself an introvert, which means you're more likely to avoid social events thinking, well, I'm not going to go to that. I'm an introvert, which means that over time you become lonely, which carries its uh, its whole set of uh, dangers, but also your social skills begin to erode, which means that when you are in social events, um, you won't. You will feel more awkward. You won't be as practiced as normal, which means you're more likely to call yourself an introvert. Rinse and repeat. And loneliness is as dangerous for you as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Like it literally degrades your internal organs. So I really want people to stop saying I'm an introvert because it's probably not true. And even if it is true, introversion is is not. It, it carries dangers with it. It's a it's a risk factor. So even if you are an introvert, that means you have to be that much more intentional about making sure you get that social interaction. I like that because I am a firm believer that uh, we can the labels we give ourselves can often become a self fulfilling prophecy. So if I declare myself a complete introvert, then as you say, I'm not going to go out as much, and then I'm going to be more uncomfortable, and then I'll think I'm too socially awkward. And it becomes a cycle and it's a pattern that uh, it's tough to break once you get in it. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying everyone's going to become the Unabomber. I'm just saying it's dangerous for your health. It's not good for you. I mean, we know this already, right? If you, I, th- I think one of the things I wrote about was like, if you had a zoo and you got a brand new homo sapiens, <clears throat> in order to take care of that homo sapiens, you would never leave them alone, ever, right? Because we know what happens to human beings when they're in solitary confinement for any period of time. It's not a good situation. The brain actually shrinks (laughs) when we're alone. So doing this to ourselves is an unnecessary thing to do. All right. So we'll stop calling ourselves introverts. And then what do we do? Um, Keep it low. For if you feel anxious about going back into conversation for whatever reason, pandemic or otherwise, if you feel anxious about it, keep it low risk. So I encourage people to have a, uh, the, those 30-second conversations with like their grocery store clerks or their barista, those really short ones. 
ask your Uber driver about where they grew up and what it was like, right? Because A, they have a financial incentive to be nice to you. (laughs) And B, it's time limited. You know, one of the biggest fears that prevents people from having conversations with others is we have this mostly unfounded fear that we won't be able to get out of it the conversation. Not entirely sure where that comes from, um, but we seem to be deathly afraid that we'll be stuck in a conversation forever. So if you have these time-limited conversations, number one, um, they can be very rewarding to you, right? Um, Even these, even we know that even waving to a neighbor across the street can improve your mood, can improve your sense of belonging. Um, So it doesn't have to be long and involved, but it can really lift your mood and it'll help you start to feel more comfortable and relaxed when you're ready to have more involved conversations. Yeah, there's a thing about like on an airplane where people just are really quick to put in the earbuds to communicate to everybody around them. Like, don't talk to me because you don't want to sit on a flight and be trapped for four hours next to somebody who's talking at you, right? Right. But there is research, and I've read the studies on it, that will show when we talk to a stranger on a plane, even for a couple of minutes, it usually boosts our mood. They are usually happier. And we're not trapped. You can end a conversation. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Maybe you're like, oh, I'm going to take a nap now, but thanks for talking to me or something like that. But you're not forced to sit there and listen to somebody for four hours. Although maybe some of us have been in that situation where we felt like we were, but again, it's up to us to to do something different if we want. Yeah. I kind of give people a pass on airplanes because not everybody is as good as ending them. Many people feel comfortable and their own sense of politeness uh, prevents them from saying the things like, you know what, I'm going to focus on my work now, you know, have a great flight. Um, that's difficult for people. That's a high level of difficulty. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so uh, I wouldn't start there. <laughs> yeah. Even I, even I sometimes am like, leave me alone. I just had a terrible travel experience. You know, I need to focus. That's okay. Although you're right. The research shows you're probably not going to end up in that awful situation. You're probably going to enjoy it more. And and this is all, the research also shows that this, what, you know, sociologists call the power of weak contacts, that we have, we get this outsized beneficial impact from these low cost, low risk exchanges with people. So five or 10 minutes. And then there's the extra boost that um, other research shows that even a 10 minute conversation about, nothing about, you know, stupid stuff increases your cognitive performance on a whole host of tasks. So the, the, these benefits that you get are just, you know, we often think about listening to other people and conversing with other people as something we're doing for them, right? We're being so generous and talking to them. But the fact of the matter is, is that we take incredible benefit for ourselves incredible benefit. So maybe if that is, makes you more likely to have the conversation, think of it that way. That's a great reminder. How about when it comes to those uncomfortable conversations? Maybe it's the elephant in the room and you know you should bring it up with a loved one, but you don't dare to, or there's somebody doing something that maybe hurts your feelings, but you don't want to confront them. What advice do you have for people that are afraid to tackle those topics? So, you know, um, there's a, so, something else that we know from research, which is that you should never delay the bad news. Um, people will remember like the last thing that you said. So if you want them to come away from a conversation feeling good, deliver the bad news first. Like you, people have been giving this advice about the compliment sandwich, which turns out to be terrible advice. <laughs> 
So just deliver the bad news right away and just deliver it without judgment. And by that, I mean, sometimes we try to, to soften the blow of something um, by saying, talking around it, right? Like there's this thing and, you know, we, we get around to it. It's a little bit passive in the way we'll get to it. But people sense that when you're trying to soften the blow and it gives them the sense that it may be even more serious than it is, right? What people imagine we're about to say is usually much worse than what we're actually going to say. Our imaginations are terrible that way. They scare us to death. So a a manager calls someone in their office and our minds immediately go, I'm about to get fired. (laughs) I mean, we immediately think that, right? Um, Yep. Uh, your your significant other says we need to talk and we immediately think they're going to break up with me. Um, so don't let them imagine. Just immediately come in and say, hey, listen, I've been having trouble. You know, I've been struggling with the way you load the dishwasher. <laughs> I, I know it may seem odd, weird to you, but I'm spending, expending way too much energy on this. Can we talk through it? Solutions. Can you help me find a solution for this? You know, so just... As, as plainly as possible, without turning it into a thing, um, lay out the, the, the issue, explain what your view is on it. In other words, th- this is how this is affecting me. This is how I have tried to solve the problem. And then can you help me? Bring them into the problem solving because collaborative problem solving um, is always going to be more productive and healthy than this is your fault you fix it. I like that. And I like the idea of not softening the blow too much. I've had people who will come into my therapy office and they're confused because they think this person delivered bad news to me, but they did it in such a roundabout way. Like, I'm not sure. Did we really just break up or they still want to be friends or not? And it leaves them in this state of stress as they're trying to figure out how do I read between those lines? Yeah, it's, we think that we think that we're being kind to someone, but you know, it's always sort of like, um, you know, I always call it like, sometimes there's elephants in the room and, and it does not help to ignore them. It does not help to be like, well, let's just edge around this with my plate of hors d'oeuvres and pretend like the elephant isn't there. Just acknowledge it. Don't shame the elephant for being there. It's not his fault. Just like acknowledge it. Say, here's the truth of what's happening. Let's deal with reality here and, and then figure out how to solve it. And, and it can be that simple. You know, people are much more open to solving problems than we, I think we realize. If, if you identify it less by your emotions, because emotions are fleeting, they're temporary, right? Um, so it's less about what you feel at that moment and more about the larger issue and how do we solve it. I like that because we do. We like to be invited into the problem solving process and start to look at how can I help? What can I do about it? Right, exactly. So I know you have a book coming out uh, this fall about race. Obviously, that's a difficult subject for a lot of people to talk about. Can you give us just one tip on how we might tackle a sensitive subject when it comes to race? Um, The first thing I say in the book is the first thing I will tell you is stop um, being afraid of the word racist. Um, If racism is defined by a tendency to make assumptions about other people based on their race, whether those assumptions are either good, like the model minority or bad, um, then we're all racist, <laughs> right? Like even the scientists who, who created the tests uh, to detect 
unconscious bias and implicit bias, the IAT test at Harvard, even they fail some of those tests, <laughs> right? So we all have unconscious bias. Um, we live in a society that teaches us unconscious bias from a very young age. And therefore, okay, I'm in bi- I am biased in some ways. I don't entirely know what all those biases are. And I also know that research shows that being aware of my unconscious biases is not going to help me uh, avoid them in the future. And so therefore, let me just enter in this conversation, acknowledging that I'm imperfect and I'm not going to be afraid of someone saying that was racist. I would also say that if you're going to call somebody out, rather than saying you are a racist, say that was a racist thing to say, or that was a um, racist comment, um, or that's a racist assumption um, and allow people to sort of see it for what it is that this thing that you just did was based on white supremacy and racism. This is problematic, but you can fix it. Oh, I can't wait to read this book. It sounds like it's going to be uh, a really good read. And I have no doubt that one will help a lot of people too. I hope so. Well, Celeste, thank you so much for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. I love all of your tips and I think you're going to help our audience have better conversations. Uh, I appreciate it. And I uh, good luck with all of your uh, patients in the future who are confused by passive aggressive conversation. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Celeste had tons of helpful tips, so it was tough to just pick a few. But here are three of my favorite strategies that you can start applying to your life right now. Number one, reduce your Zoom meetings. Celeste talked about how taxing video meetings are on our brains. Her suggestion is to talk to other people on the phone or meet with them in person whenever you can. If you've been attending a lot of Zoom meetings during the pandemic, it's probably not surprising to you. On the surface, you might think that sitting on the couch next to your cat, talking to your boss, would be much more relaxing than sitting in the boardroom. But research backs this up that this isn't the case. And Celeste described the science behind why Zoom meetings boggle our brains and are a lot more taxing. I agree. And I try to just talk on the phone or turn my cameras off in Zoom meetings whenever I can, because staring at a close-up image of myself talking is way tougher than it might seem. So if you can reduce the number of video meetings you attend, or at the very least, try turning your camera off, you might feel better. Of course, though, sometimes we feel like turning off the camera will cause other people to think that we're just pretending to work when we're not actually working. So turn it on for a minute and say hello if you feel the need to, and then turn your camera off and give your brain a break if you can. And you'll likely find that other people in the meeting might do the same. Number two. Make your goal to listen, not just walk away from a conversation feeling good. Celeste talked about how good we feel when we talk about ourselves. But only talking about ourselves in a conversation leaves the other person feeling not so good. Be aware of this tendency and you'll likely have more balanced conversations. It's something that one of our other guests, Mark Golston, talked about as well. If you want to learn how to become a better listener, go check out episode number 91 and you'll learn his tips for listening to people. I like Celeste's strategy about focusing on the other person rather than yourself when you're talking. Make it your goal to be a good listener and be aware of the tendency to just try to give your brain those feel-good transmitters that get released when we talk about ourselves. When you talk about yourself less and you listen more, you'll facilitate a better conversation. And when you encounter people who do only talk about themselves, try not to get too annoyed. 
remind yourself that they're probably talking about themselves a lot because they're just looking for a little boost in their mood. And number three, invite the other person to solve the problem with you. I love how Celeste talked about working together to solve problems. As a therapist, I agree. You don't need to keep the focus on how upset you feel. Whether it's your boss or your partner, telling someone how angry you feel and why you feel so upset, it's probably going to lead to a defensive reaction rather than a proactive solution. To help move things forward, invite the other person to solve the problem alongside you. People are more likely to change their behavior when they have some say in how to create that change as opposed to just being told what to do. So those are three of Celeste's strategies that can help you communicate better. Talk to people on the phone or in person as opposed to video chats. Make your goal to listen to people in conversations rather than just talk about yourself. And invite other people to solve problems with you. If you want more of Celeste's tips, pick up a copy of her book, We Need to Talk. She also has another book coming out in September called Speaking of Race, where she explains how to have conversations about race that bring us together rather than drive us apart. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.